I was at church this morning, um, and I was sitting by myself because uh, my wife was, was upstairs in the nursery. And when she came downstairs from the nursery, the first thing she said to me was, you need to talk to somebody about getting doors on, on the nursery. And if you know anything about little kids, you know, you can't stop them. You can only hope to contain them. Doors are, are essential to, to this in, endeavor. And, and she was right. We needed doors on the nursery. This particular room that she was in had, had two doorways and, and no doors. And in fact, outside of these doorways were pretty much infinite opportunities for children to find their way into the jaws of, of peril and, and doom. Because one of the things that's going on at our church right now is it's currently being converted so that we can use the space as, as a daycare. One of the, the great needs that this town has is there's a child care shortage, and that affects people's happiness. That affects sometimes people's, even their ability to, to provide for their family because they can't get the hours that they need uh, from, from child care for them them to go into work. And so our church had come into a bunch of money and we were like, man, how can we use this for mission and service? And we, were, we could, we could start a, a daycare. The problem is when you want to start a daycare, you can't just put a daycare in any old building. And if your building was built, when our building was built, like way back in, in the fifties, it's not up to fire codes. There are no sprinklers. There's some significant fire hazards. The layout's all wrong. Some of the electricity and even the, the, the rooms, the places where the walls are and the doors are, aren't conducive to daycare. And so what the state essentially said to our church was, you got to rip this thing down to the studs. You got to take it all the way down to, to the frame and the floor will be the same and the exterior of the building will be the same, but you have to completely deconstruct what you have known as the interior of your church building and then build something new in here so that you can use this in the way that you feel as though you've been called to use it. And so that's what our church started doing. And you know what? It's been tough. And it's been painful and it's been mildly inconvenient. And sometimes it's hard when a little kid says, Miss Stacy, can I go and get a drink of water? And she has to say no, because there's eight tons of insulation and a Sawzall sitting out there. And I'm not really convinced that you won't go and try to, you know, chew on the end of that, that Sawzall. And she has to corral all of these small children who really want nothing more in that moment, but their own mommy and not somebody else's mommy. Deconstruction is, is difficult. But as I was talking to her and I was talking to some of the people on the property and finance committee after church and we were chatting and fortunately some other folks had already seen that this lack of doors was probably an issue for the people in children's ministry. I said to them, look, the good news is this is as bad as it's going to get. Like we were looking around and we could see metal and we could see the frames of all of, of the rooms. And there was nothing else that you could really take down without the ceiling caving in on the rest of the building. And so I said, from here on out, it's gravy for us because it'll only get easier. All we will be doing is building around the original frame of the building and it'll become exciting and it'll become uh, uh, increasingly more convenient. And this will be a place that, that we can come into and be proud of and love and use in the way that God has called us to use it. 
I feel like we've done a lot of, of deconstruction so far in our study of the book of Romans. And we've talked about a lot of tough stuff and a lot of icky stuff. And, and over and over and over again, we keep hitting on things that the gospel is not. The gospel is not ritual. The gospel is not law. The, the gospel is, is not something that's supposed to make our lives more, more difficult or tougher or something that we don't enjoy. Now as we get into Romans 4, the, you know, this is kind of as bad as it's going to get. What we get to start talking about now is now that we've ripped everything out, now that we're just down to the foundation and we're down to the studs, what can we build around when it comes to our understanding of God and when it comes to our understanding of the church and our humanity and how God has created us? And how can that be something now that we're excited about? Because my guess is that there aren't a lot of us who've been really excited to, to think about, oh, what, what does it mean for me to be a sinful and broken person? What does it mean for me to be human in the sense of really being able to fully not escape my incompleteness in the painful experiences of my life? Today, we start down the road of, okay, what does wholeness and completeness really look like? That discussion starts in, in, in chapter 4 of Romans. And one of the foundational pieces, one of those studs in the wall that we're going to talk about today, is a guy by the name of Abraham. And this is what Paul has to say about Abraham at the beginning of Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul's talking about something that we might need a little bit of context for, because once again, Paul says, as it is written, which up until this point, we have started to realize is Paul's code for, look, this is what it says in the Old Testament. This is what it says in the Hebrew Bible. And back in Genesis 15, God is interacting with this guy whose name is not yet Abraham, but is Abram. That's actually in chapter 14. And they're starting to talk about things. And they get to chapter 15. And this Abraham guy, he's old. He's 75 years old. And God says to him, I want to make a covenant with you. I want to make a promise to you. And the promise is, is this, that, that your children, your offspring, the nation that I am going to birth out of you is going to number more. It's going to number greater than the stars in the sky. And Abram, he's a rational fellow. And I'm sure in his mind, he's thinking, man, they would never even cast me for a Viagra commercial. Like that just wouldn't be convincing. I'm too old, God, to start this thing that, that you're talking about. And so even in his, his own mind, he's thinking about, wow, what kind of things is God going to do? Who else is God going to going to work through in my house for this to come to be? And God's just like, no, 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 you don't understand. You are going to birth a nation. And I understand that you're old and I understand that, you know, in tradition and, and, and this is kind of pre-science, but scientifically this doesn't make a lot of sense. But you and your wife are going to have a son. And from this son and from this son's sons and daughters and from this son's sons and daughters, sons and daughters, it's going to just be amazing. 
and my glory is going to be made known. Your offspring will number more than the stars in the sky. And it says this, that Abraham simply believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham simply believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. This idea that, that Abraham was, was a righteous man, this was something that was given to him by God. It wasn't something that Abraham earned. In fact, what we know from reading ancient Jewish literature is that tradition would tell us that Abraham was actually a pagan when he was a young man and even into his old age. But then God encounters him. God engages him. God presents him with this promise and with this opportunity. And Abraham Abraham has faith. And because of Abraham's faith, because of Abraham's belief, God gives Abraham this covenant, this thing that he has not earned, but it is credited to him. And Paul talks a language here in Romans that that, that we can all understand. And he talks about that, you know, if you go to your job and you fill out your time card and then your boss pays you money according to what was on your time card, then that's something that you say, yes, okay, I've earned this. Yes, I deserve this. But there's a difference between that kind of transaction and what happens to us sometimes when somebody gives us something. And not only do they give us something, but they give us something that we don't even deserve. And what Abraham got that he didn't deserve, that he didn't earn, was this covenantal righteousness, this opportunity, this promise that God made and that God fulfilled Paul goes on to talk about another person from the Old Testament that we've probably heard of before. And he says that just as David, in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David understood even before the coming of Jesus Christ that the Lord was gracious and compassionate. I think David understood that because David himself was kind of a filthy, rotten sinner. Because David himself was a murderer. Because David himself was an adulterer. David was very thankful that even in the midst of those things, that God still counted him as friend. That God did not lose sight of the promises that he had made about what it was that David would accomplish. That there was still this this covenantal righteousness that God had bestowed upon David. And though at times, at times, David's, David's flesh may have faltered, he still showed great faith in the Lord his God. And so when God would speak to him, David would come back around. And just like with Abraham... God did not expect David to stay in the state that he was in at any given time. God expected David to continue to repent. God expected David to continue to be sanctified, to change for the better. God expected and hoped and wanted David to learn from his mistakes. God wanted David to develop as a man and and, and as a leader. God wanted David to develop and, and continue to flesh out what it looked like to serve other people because the seed of of Jesse was being sown through David. We know that Jesus Christ himself was an ancestor of, of, of David. And so this thing is happening and David understands that he's crucial to it in that moment, but it's so much bigger than him. 
because he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. But he also has this faith and he has this understanding and he has this humility to come to God and say, God, even though I don't deserve this, I'm going to live in the faith and the reality that that you have promised this to me. And this righteousness that you have called me to is a covenantal righteousness. And I can't hold up my end of the bargain, but I know that you're big enough to hold up both ends of the bargain. That I will believe. Paul asks, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? If not after, but it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. While he was still uncircumcised, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So think about Abraham. And he's standing in this place of promise before God. He's encountered the the Lord God himself. The Lord God has said, I'm going to make your descendants greater than all of the stars in the sky. I'm pretty sure that Abraham thought, man, this world's just going to keep on spinning then for a long time. I believe that, but even doing the math, I can't imagine how many generations must come for that to be the case. The thing about God is sometimes when God calls us into covenantal promises, when God calls us to live by faith so that we might be a part of this covenantal righteousness, that sometimes the answers to God's promises are bigger than we can ever imagine. And what I don't think Abraham probably anticipated What was that you and I would be a part of his family? That this family would look so amazing and so robust. That this family would cover so much more of the globe than even God had promised. Because God had promised a certain plot of land to Abraham. God had promised a certain amount of space to Abraham. But in reality, what God was promising was the entire world. That there would be this thing that could bind us all together. If only we could believe, if only we could believe. And so the fundamental question that's being asked here at the beginning of of, of Romans 4 is, can we have the faith wherever we stand right now to believe that God embraces us into his family, that God indeed calls us as one of his own? That God extends this offer of covenantal righteousness to us regardless of where we are. Having already been called like David understood when he cries out to God at times during the Psalms. Or even as Abraham when he was Abram as a pagan. That God would reach out to him with this offer. This is a, a reality and a tension that we live with in our house every single day. Can we be comfortable in our own skin, in this idea of covenantal righteousness or covenantal promise. And and not that that my wife and I play God, but but we do play parent, just as God is, is our parent, right? And one of the interesting things about the way in which we are called to parent is we are called to parent 
two children who were not born of our flesh, who were not born of our, our, our blood. There is not a biological tie there. And one of the interesting things about parenting adopted kids sometimes, especially adopted kids who have come from, from really hard, extraordinarily hard places, is that there's something in them, even from a very young age, that can at times question, will these parents love me no matter what? Will these parents love me no matter what? Because what we know about kids biologically and psychologically is that our ability to attach to other people in our lives, that, that is a seed that is sown from the very moment that we are born. And the first nine to, to 15 months in our life are so crucial to that. When we cry, do people come to comfort us? When we're hungry, do people come and, and feed us? When our diapers need changed, do people tend to our needs? And in my house, we have two little girls who, when they asked those questions instinctively as infants, the answer wasn't always yes. And so it was very difficult then for them sometimes to then develop healthy relationships with adults in their lives. It's difficult for them to develop sometimes healthy relationships with their parents. There are some, some trust issues there. And the amazing thing about it is they don't even fully understand those trust issues because they're nine and, and they're four, but their brain was conditioned at a very young age to have this uncertainty as to whether or not the adults that they live with right now who call themselves their parents, who have given them their name, if those people will keep up the end of the bargain that they have promised. And as they get older, every single day, our goal as parents is to communicate to them, we will never leave you. We're not going to do it. And it's not because there was some audition process. In fact, we did blind adoptions with our girls where, where we told the agency, you know, like whatever happens, don't worry about it. And, and we were like cool with um, special needs adoptions. And so we had talked with them about what some of our parameters and just expectations were about that. Um, it was interesting both times. It's, it's apparently really hard to adopt girls because people love to adopt girls. Both times we had said either gender and we anticipated adopting boys. And, and, and both times we were shocked when our agency called us and said, we have a, a little girl for you. And when they called us, um, one of the things that we, we decided not to do with both of our daughters, they would say, you know, do you want us to send over the file? And we said, you know what, just like send over the basic file, whatever you do, don't send us pictures. Like we don't want any part of our decision-making process to be based on, you know, physical appearance. So like send us the basics. Mostly what we're going to do is just kind of pray about it and then we'll make our decision. We knew the minute they called us that we were 99% going to say yes, unless God just intervened and said, I'm slamming this door in, in your face. But we did. We, we, we prayed about it. And when we got to the point where we finally got to meet our girls by seeing pictures of them, and when we finally got to, to, to meet them by holding them in our arms, arms, the decision had already been made. We had already made the promise to, to God that we would steward these lives that he would entrust us with. We had already made promises to, to their governments that we would take them into our homes and that we would love them and, and care for them. And they can't rationally process that right now. And so every day from when we wake up to when we go to sleep, our efforts and our prayers are, are to reinforce in them something that they did not get to experience in their early days and that is this, that, that, that man, we're, yeah, like we're, we're here for you. And we're going to keep the promise that we made to you.
we are going to keep the promise that we made to you. And our hope is, as, as they get older, that they develop a greater capacity and a deeper capacity to live in that trust. That as they get older, they develop a greater capacity and a deeper capacity to, to attach in healthy ways to other people and to love other people deeply just as we love them and, and just as God loves them. And when it's time for us to send them out, the, the, the fruit of all of that for us, of all of that, that great, wonderful, sometimes very hard, sometimes uh, very volatile labor that we do day in and day out is, is that they get to play that role in somebody else's life, that that becomes part of, of, of their testimony and that they could speak of, of their pain and their difficulty, but also of the love and the wholeness that they have and the faith that they have in God and in other people. And I think that that's a, a lovely, beautiful, wonderful picture of, of what Paul is trying to construct here. I know that because he talks about adoption later in Romans, that, that we should have a spirit of, of adoption, a spirit of love, not a spirit of fear. He talks about that later in Romans 8, and we'll be there in the end of our semester. But the question that I have for us, the first question that I have for us tonight is, are we willing to lean into that faith, knowing that it might be uncomfortable, knowing that it might be hard, knowing that it might be irrational? Are we willing to live in the reality that God has presented us with something that we never could have earned, but that's okay. God knows that we can't earn it. God knows that we can't do it on our own. And even more so, that's why God is coming to us and saying, I want you to accept this promise that only I can keep. I want you to accept this promise that only I can keep. And if we really do truly believe that, then what are the creative, what are, what are the radical ways in which we can express to others that God is making that promise to them as well? That God's making that promise to them as well. Paul lays it all out here. And what he lays out is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter where you're in your journey right now. It doesn't matter your, your physical location. It doesn't matter what you're thinking. This promise is offered to you. That's why we talk about servant leadership so much at this institution, because we know that there are ways in which you can creatively engage your environment, no matter what your profession will be, once you leave here to offer people the promise that God has offered you. It's one of the reasons we're so passionate about missions here, because we believe that it's unacceptable that there are places in this world where people do not hear about the love and the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has for them and has made for them. And we believe that, that, that you can play an integral part in going places, be it the dark places and, and the unseen places and the forgotten places of this country or territory that's never been forged before all over this world. World, adding stars to the sky, adding stars to Abraham's family, knowing that you are not only a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, but you are an agent to continue the cycle of that promise and of God making good of that promise of bringing people into the family of God. Something that was totally unimaginable 
at one point in time when God went to this guy who was 75 years old and said, I will make you the, the, the father of the greatest kingdom known to humanity. And that is the kingdom of God. As we sit here today in this kind of deconstructed state, having wrestled with our sinfulness, having wrestled with our brokenness, let's start today by focusing on, on, this, on this one wall that God has allowed us to put up today, this one door that God has allowed us to put up today, knowing that there's a lot more construction to be done if we're going to understand what it looks like for us to be the church if we're going to know what it looks like for us to be the people that God, that who God has created us to be. But let's focus on this one thing today, that God has offered us a promise that God will keep. That God sees all of us as his children. That God sees everybody out here as his children. And that God wants us to live as members of the family of Abraham. God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this place. And we thank you that you are big enough to make promises that it might be tough for us to, to believe that you can fulfill, but not only can you fill them, you can fulfill them in an exponentially greater way than we can even imagine. Help us, God, to, to, to trust you, even though that might be hard. Lord, in our unbelief, help us to come to believe. Help us not view faith as, as, as an unholy idol but help us to view it as the first step in a process where you embrace us, where you teach us how to love, where you plant us as, as trees that bear fruit for generation upon generation to come. Thank you for fulfilling your promise through us. Thank you for using us as agents of change in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.